0: This is my story, or at least this is going to be part one. If you've been following along for a while now, you know, my name's Michael. And if you follow me on Instagram, then recently I've talked about sharing my story on the podcast and felt like this was the time to do that. And I don't know if I'd say I'm excited to share this with you, but I'm excited to reclaim some agency, experience solidarity, and to let you know what it's been like for me to walk through religious trauma and spiritual abuse, and I'm breaking it down into two episodes. So I really have two major experiences and felt like in order for us to keep things straight and really allow for... Our ideas and my ideas to stay cohesive and to not do a two-hour episode. This was what was going to work best. And so this is part one. And I want to be clear, too, on the front end about why I'm doing this. I really stumbled into talking about religious trauma and spiritual abuse. I don't think it's anyone's desire to actually do that unless they've experienced it and want to help others process their experiences as well. And so my goal in telling my story is not to cause problems or sling mud or somehow get back at the church that i was a part of i don't have any interest in a smear campaign i publicly call them out it's the salt network all the time and i think it's because they continue to perpetuate harm and don't have accountability and i believe that i was very much a part of that harm and then was harmed by them and one of the big reasons i do this is because I think they do that harm through the ideology, theology, and philosophy of ministry, and then just their church structure. And my biggest thing is that there has not been any dialogue with me or those who've been harmed from leaders about those behaviors and the things they've done. If you're not gonna be honest about it, then I'm gonna let people know what's happening with the platform that, I've, that I have. that I'm gonna tell people about the things that I've seen and reflected on what I find to be toxic. But again, I'm trying to liberate people and help people heal. I wanna use my position as a white heterosexual male who people are unfortunately more prone to listen to, to at least get them listening to the fact that there is something very wrong with certain parts of the church and that what I'm going to tell you is not unique to the churches that I'm telling these stories about that I was a part of. It's a problem within the whole church and we need to keep talking about it. And I think we should be upset about it because these people are representing the way that most people understand connection to God, to living spirit. And they're doing really heinous and harmful things and behaving in dangerous and harmful ways with no accountability. And that's a problem. And I want to talk about the reality of what I've gone through and my family has gone through and the hundreds and hundreds of other people that have also gone through it. And I think another big part of why I'm doing this too is this is still a relevant discussion. Six months ago, I helped a small group of students navigate harm happening at a new Salt Company church plant and it's abusively pastor, and watched as they told me stories of their attempt to hold him accountable being dismissed by those in leadership over him. And he was protected. And so as long as cycles like that keep happening, and people aren't held accountable the things that they're doing, I'm going to keep talking about it. And one of the best ways I can do that is to share my story with you. So let's get started. I was a part of the Salt Company first as a student and then as a pastor for just over a decade. And I first started going to Salt Company in college. And here's the thing, I needed Salt Company at the time or I needed something outside of myself. I was a sophomore in college and had been to enough parties sober to realize that whatever we were doing was not worth doing. Anymore and felt just lifeless and stupid and didn't want to keep living that way, but didn't know what to do. And so started going, it was immediately met with a sense of belonging, community, incredible friends. It was what I needed. It was innocent fun, I guess you could say. And it felt me, it helped me and others connect to something bigger than ourselves, which I think is a human desire. And I think it's good. And in a lot of ways, I owe the trajectory of some of my life and those desires really being birthed from that experience. And to be initially accepted as myself and to have people really excited to know me was a big deal. So Salt Company as a student for me, for the years I was in it, really positive, really powerful, and I'm grateful. I am really grateful for that experience for the most part. I think, obviously, there are things we could get into the weeds on that weren't great. Purity culture, Calvinist, Baptist theology is an issue. And the leaders at the time were still very marked riskily in their understanding or Bill Hybels-esque in the way that they functioned. And those guys don't have great track records for the things they said and did and believe and still believe or the way they operated and made decisions. And those influences are more insidious. They really don't produce the bad fruit till later and you don't realize what they're doing to you right when it's happening, at least not most of the times. But for all intents and purposes, it was a positive experience to make friends, some of whom I'm still talking to today, others who because of this public stuff that I do have not found it safe or comfortable to associate with me anymore. And I get that, it's painful, but I understand. Then I was an intern for half a second for this family pastor, and I was an admin guy and should not have been an admin guy, especially not then. But to this pastor's credit, his name's Paul Sabino, there were a lot of things that Paul believes in and has done that I don't agree with. But I have to thank that man and his family for helping me. Young and in my marriage, he showed me what it meant like to live with discipline, integrity, and to have courage to do hard things. And when you're loved by him and his family, you're loved all the way. They're incredible people and really gave my wife and I a sense of home at a chaotic time where we really didn't know what we were doing young and married. And they helped us a lot. I'm grateful for them. And when he left and I lost that internship position, I started volunteering in youth ministry and that volunteering led to being employed as a youth pastor and in the six years that i was a youth pastor it was awesome and now again it comes with its like own issues i was being paid as an intern 500 bucks a month then as a double intern for 1200 bucks and then when i got my first full-time salary it was thirty thousand dollars a year and i thought this was a huge deal was told, you can't ask for more than that, because I know there's a line of guys who would do it for much less than you're doing it now. So essentially, be grateful you have a job that a bunch of people would want because we're so great. It's the vibe, which is not a great vibe. We can all agree, not a great vibe. (laughs) But that's the way that was and did that for six years and really, those six years, I look back now, and they're still my favorite memories. They're still the best years I spent as a pastor in ministry and doing those things, loving those students and participating in that. It's just, yeah, it's full of fondness in life. And I got to just care for the students without pressure, without this need to succeed or get more numbers or more funding like other ministries did, especially the college ministry. So there was just this freedom to grow and to learn, to invest in families and students and the life of the church that a lot of people overlooked had this incredible leadership team every year. People just so committed to the vision of what I was trying to do there. And it was just, yeah, it was a really important time, and I'm grateful for it. They helped me not feel totally grossed out about my time as a pastor. Obviously, other moments do too, but youth ministry was the fondest. But then after six years, felt like things were growing stale, felt like I was outgrowing my role as a youth pastor and really wanted to explore what it would look like. And honestly, that was the thing we were encouraged to do in that context is like you climb the ladder, you find bigger ponds to swim in. You're supposed to do more. And I wanted to do more and felt like exploring doing more. And what eventually became the front running option was to go to Cedar Falls, Iowa and work for Candeo Church. So that was the next step for us. And I want to, this is where the story is going to get interesting. And a lot of my observations now and what I remember comes from reflection. And I just want to say, I don't want, this is one sided you're getting my side of the story. And I'm not naive enough to think that I was always easy to lead or that being my boss didn't come with its own frustrations or that I I wasn't always willing to do what I was told to do, especially if I didn't agree with it. And I was often passive aggressive about that. And so I know there are things I could have done better or ways I could have just carried myself. It's absolutely true. And just want it to be said, even if it's been said too many times. I don't think I'm a victim. I did go through this experience, and I do believe I was spiritually abused in both of these contexts. But I don't live as a victim and don't believe that it was this thing where you should think, oh, poor Michael and what he went through. And I just want to say that because I am not just trying to piss people off. So what happened, though, at this time, jumping back into the story, is I was being offered the role of co-director of this college ministry, and in Salt Network, that's the big kahuna, unless you're planting a church now, which I'm sure is an even bigger deal, but to be the salt director, literally in the letter that people that this church would later send out to its members explaining why they fired me when they did, they called it their premier ministry, which is disgusting, but they called it that. It's the reason these churches exist. They go to these universities to get students, quote unquote, saved. And they're trying to, yeah, just change the world one college student at a time. So I was on top of the world. thought this was awesome. Cedar Falls was quiet and boring and not as big as I wanted it to be. And really, when I look back, it wasn't what I had originally wanted to do. And... There was drama around me leaving with the lead pastor at the time in Cornerstone, which is where I was the youth pastor. The issue happened multiple times in my last months there with Troy Nisbet. He is the director of the Salt Network, and large amount of attention had been put on the church, and then the network was born because of the way we did college ministry. The Baptists wanted to reproduce that it got people saved and made a lot of money. So they wanted Cornerstone to create a network that would plant as many churches as possible. I think their goal is like 100 churches in 20 years, which is insane and why we have problems. But you get so pumped full of money, power and influence, it's fair to say that's usually when things go bad and does refine and show who you really are and how you see the world and accentuates the issues. And that's what I think happened. But my time in youth ministry was done, so I started exploring these other options. And before the Candeo option came up, I was asked to consider going by Troy to go to a church 30 minutes away to take over their youth ministry and revamp it and see what I could do with it. And after reflecting with my wife and at the time praying and really considering, is that the best thing? We came to the conclusion that we didn't think it was, that it was not in our best interest to do that. And Troy didn't like that to the point where he even said to me if this is a corporate job I could just force you to do this and you wouldn't have a say in it and then when I was still resistant to it he said sometimes you need to be a good soldier and follow orders and I don't know any pastor who should speak that way so I was pretty unsettled by that pushed back on it went to one of the other pastors and had that all shut down, but in a follow-up meeting with Troy, where he was supposed to make amends and we were supposed to apologize, he told me that he was just trying to see if he could get me to cry and was impressed because I didn't. And when he sees people crying, he said he was like a shark and tears are blood in the water. And so it makes him aggressive. Again, unsettling's the word that comes to mind. It's a really weird thing for a pastor to say somebody represents Jesus Christ. But then a few months later, we ended up in another discussion where maybe I could become a church planter and wanted to explore that idea. But he didn't believe I knew how to start anything, so he wanted me to move to a place 30 minutes away and just start a college ministry. And that if I could prove I could do that, he would send me on a church plant and the conditions around all of that. I didn't feel like, again, made sense for my family, didn't seem appropriate for my mental health or my wife's mental health, and he totally disagreed. But again, now, this is a church who... When we had our first child, they said, wow, we really didn't think your wife was going to make it, and that you having a child might have disqualified you from ministry. What the actual, who says this stuff? And they do, and they get away with it. Back to this. He's trying to push our mental health, literally says, I won't let you be a church planter unless you go start this college ministry, because we need to either push your anxiety to the brink, and that so that it either completely overwhelms you and then we'll know it's not a good idea for you or we will see that you can handle it and it won't be an issue in the future. So we pushed back and it didn't go well. It became more and more clear that staying there was probably only going to create more conflict. I was told I could work for the salt company in Ames and then the director at the time suddenly just stopped mentioning that and took back his verbal affirmation that I could have a job there. And I was stuck going, okay, so then what is going to happen next? Because I had no idea. And that's where Cody Klein had moved up to Candeo Church and says, hey, why don't you come here? Why don't you come and be a co-salt director? And that was an opportunity to lead salt company, which at the time was a really big deal. And we went up there. And that first summer there is when things really started to red flag because the church had just exchanged buildings with another church so that the church they got the building from could downsize. And then our church could expand because it was growing. But the renovation project wasn't going to be done by contractors or anyone like that but instead it was going to be us, the church staff. They told us that we would be working six days a week and probably 60 or more hours a week. And then we would also have to be at church on Sundays and it 100% is exactly what happened. And so we were doing a ridiculous amount of contracting work that none of us were qualified to do, grueling hours, and then still expected to meet with students and preach sermons at the summer college ministry and be there on Sundays. And I had a five-month-old baby and a three-year-old at home, and all of it exhausted me so bad that I got shingles and I was like 29 years old kind of messed up, probably broke some employment laws, don't think you should be in your 20s and getting shingles. And this also goes to one of the weird expectations that I don't know if it still exists, but it did when I was there in the network, that you have to work 50 hours a week. And their justification was that you have to work 50 hours because there are people who work full-time jobs and then come volunteer for church things like youth group or Sunday mornings and we can't work less than our volunteers and so it was this ridiculous precedent. And I could go way into how unhealthy that is but I'm sure if you're listening to that you're going, really? That doesn't make any sense. Because then as a college pastor you were expected to be at church until 10.30 or 11.00 some Thursday nights for the college service and then on top of that You had to be there all day Sunday. So you were working way more hours than anyone else. And it was just something you were expected to do. You have to do. And yeah, just really frustrating and stupid and ridiculous. But here we are and that's what happened. And I hope you don't have to do that anymore. Anyone listening to this who works there, but again, I wasn't really at home in my own body. I was pretty good at assimilating. I was used to these kinds of ridiculous things. And so got shingles, got better, started the fall, and thought it was great. I'm cloud nine. I'm cell company staff. I'm preaching and teaching, working way too much. Not really with my family, but everything's new and fun. And it's just, it feels sexy and exciting. It was this cool thing to do, going to all the retreats and the teaching, discipleship, go to this thing, that conference, all of it. And that first year got really close to that family, the Sabinos, when they had left, they went up there. We were with them again, dreaming about church planting. And my wife and I were like, oh, maybe we could go with them. We really get along with them. We vacation with them. We love them, awesome people. But as the school year went on and the place they were going to plant was birthed, it felt too quick and too much for my family. And so we pulled back from that. And then halfway through the year, had a conversation with the lead pastor, Cody where he told me that he essentially brought me to Cedar Falls in order to prove that he didn't think the other guy I was doing it with had the chops to be the salt director and that it was essentially all a ploy to do a two horse race, to see who was the faster horse. And I was told I was the faster horse and he thought I was going to be better. So I was going to become the sole salt director and get to have my own staff team. And at the time I only knew how to think of me. I only knew how to preserve myself. That's the thing about mega church culture is you move so fast, you don't really ever have time to slow down and actually consider all of the abusive and messed up bullshit that is happening to you in these instances over and over again. And I was just excited. I was absolutely exhausted from an insane year of ministry, but I had this platform I'd always been wanting, and the staff team I was going to be able to create for myself, and... It was, yeah, it was just everything I'd wanted. So end of the year comes, my wife and I go on an all-inclusive vacation by ourselves. And I was downloading a bunch of podcasts to listen to while we sat in chairs and just rotted away on the beach. And one of them was called This Cultural Moment. If you haven't heard of it, it's with a guy named John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers. And to me, these ideas were novel at the time. I feel weird even talking to you about them now, because I wouldn't recommend them to you necessarily. (laughs) I would maybe recommend them as a stepping stone or like church adjacent, but I don't agree with their theology and some of the people that they're associated with for lots of reasons that aren't for this episode. But I was at this point exhausted from an insane year of ministry, excited because I finally had this platform I'd been wanting, but really I was very unsatisfied with my spirituality, with my relationship with God. I'm saying that in quotes. And felt like whatever I was supposed to have, I didn't have, and wasn't experiencing what I wanted to be. And so I'm hearing these guys talk about the Holy Spirit on this podcast, and the gifts of the Spirit, and the way that they understood culture, and movements of God, and how the Western world works and spirituality is connected to it. And it was just really incredible to me. They're very smart and they make really helpful insights. So I just kept downloading these podcasts from Bridgetown Church, from any of those guys, they're called the Sea Rock guys, all of their podcasts, just devouring. They're really big on spiritual formation, the discipline, silence and solitude, listening prayer, prophetic prayer, something called Lectio Divina, a lot of contemplative practices, a lot of Dallas Willard stuff, if you know who that is. And so that whole summer, I was just started listening and listening and practicing silence and solitude and that without realizing it, my beliefs were slowly starting to dramatically shift and the way that I understood God was dramatically changing because I was suddenly being taught by these other podcasts that the Bible seems to assume that you can talk to God and the divine is someone or something you can have an interactive relationship with and that silence and solitude practice I started really started to deepen me and get me in touch with my true self and allow me to explore my inner world and so I started getting up earlier and earlier than anyone on the planet should just to sit in that silent space and found that something really began to change inside of me. I see it now as me coming home to myself, responding to the the divine lure, as process theology calls it. And then resonating with whatever that ultimate reality or experience was and is. And that was really transformative and really helpful to me. And I loved it. But I was at a church where that really wasn't accepted. And Emotionally Healthy Spirituality wasn't a book that they were excited about. And... these beliefs then made me go, then what about things like, what about women in church? Why is that a thing? And because of the way that all these people were teaching, a lot of what I was doing at Candeo didn't make sense anymore and didn't seem to stand on the same biblical ground that I used to give it. And I had two friends on staff at the time who were willing to question these things. One of them was fired because he was honest about something he was struggling with, which I think is ridiculous and really bothers me that I was a co-conspirator and him not having a chance to experience grace. But him and I are buddies now or at least we've reconciled and I love him a ton. He's an amazing father, awesome wife and a bunch of little boys. He's just a great dude. He's yeah, awesome guy. And another guy that I eventually brought on to help lead worship was willing to share with me that he was open to questioning everything that nothing was off-limits and that he was wanting to know a lot and question Calvinism and God being in control. And then I was in a staff meeting where Cody, we had heard a story about this little boy who had been horribly assaulted by a family member and was going to die. And that... In this prayer, Cody had said, God, we know that you are in control, and while we don't understand why this was part of your plan, we know that you're going to bring good from it. And I just remember that breaking my brain. There was no part of me that felt like I could believe in a God who planned a child to experience that harm and then somehow try to spin a story of something good coming from it. And so I couldn't do it and that continued to me questioning why don't lgbtq plus people find a home here why do we do church the way that we do and why do we just take these things for granted and that began to become this tidal wave that crashed against the shore that was the way things always worked business at usual at candeo church and the way that cody wanted things to be done And I was suddenly not willing to continue to do those things. I was not willing to go along with business as usual. So I started asking questions. Why don't we pray more? Why don't we sit and experience God more often? Felt like we were just plug and playing the God stuff in order to actually do all the other stuff. Felt like God was this adjacent spectator that we were doing these things for, but not a being or an experience that we were ever spending any time with. And that created a lot of conflict. I remember pushing back on reading business strategy books, pushing back on pointless meetings where I felt like we were dealing with ridiculous logistics, pushing back on our ministry philosophy. So I got in trouble because I stopped with the perfectly manicured services or ending and starting times or sermon lengths and really just wanted these students to have the kind of God experience that I was having and on a convictional level felt like I needed to give that to them. And around Thanksgiving at this time was starting to really experience the most turbulent parts of this conflict, felt alone, felt like there was really any there that I could talk to. It wasn't safe to talk about these things. There was even a pastor on staff who's still on staff there now who said he's never met anyone intelligent who after hearing about Calvinism ever went back to believing anything else, which is the most ridiculous, weird thing to say. But then I heard a sermon from another one of those Sea Rock guys. His name's Darren Roundson. And he was the pastor of a place called Garden Church. And spoiler alert, that's what episode two is going to be about, because I eventually ended up working for him. But at this time, I only knew him as this pastor who gave this insane sermon on simplicity. And then in me reaching out, asking if I was crazy or how to experience more of the things that were happening to me, he said, Yes, I validate you. It is. Let's talk. And he became this person who throughout the rest of the school year was an advocate for me, eventually invited me out to go to a conference at his church, who would send me resources, make time for me. There was this person saying, no, the way you're going, it's good, and to keep questioning, to keep wondering. And so in the meantime, I was continuing to not fit in the job that I was in, because I was wondering, why do we work so intensely and so much? Why don't we let women do more? I had to push back on the elder team to call a female on my staff team an associate director because they were worried it might be too close to having authority over men. And just crap like that, that I was like, what are we doing here? What is this? It was just so dumb to me. And then found out a lot of my job and what I was doing was fundraising. And I hate fundraising. Found it very difficult. Still don't enjoy it to this day. But... That wasn't why I wanted to be doing this or having that stress. And we had this guy who was supposed to be learning the salt company DNA they talk about all the time from us. And because I wasn't doing things the way I was supposed to, I was getting chastised because I wasn't showing him the salt DNA. We had fired a guy for being honest that he was struggling a year before. And now we're here doing all these ridiculous things that just didn't make sense to me. And I wanted to question all of them and really wonder why we were doing what we were doing and what the goal of all this was. And I became passive aggressive, frustrated, pushing back, and thought, just hell no, I'm not going to do these things this way because I don't think they're healthy. And I was getting ready to go to a conference in California and apparently had been leaning back in my chair and got on the phone with Cody the next day as I was driving to the airport for this conference where he told me that he felt like my posture leaning back in a chair at a meeting he walked by with me in was a great example of my posture in my job and the way that I was behaving and that I was lazy and not committed and that I needed to take this conference I was going to really consider whether or not I was serious about doing things the Candeo way and sticking with the DNA and all of those things. And I went to that conference and had things that furthered my charismatic experience in the path that I was going down. So when I came back, Yeah, I had said I wanted to do things those way, but it only got worse. My relationship with Cody only continued to grow more distant from each other, arguing about things. He would make public jokes about me wanting to pray more in front of other people. I would continue to question the philosophy of some of the things that we were doing and why, and I just wasn't feeling like I fit in. And I would later find out that he was feeling the same way and doing some of the same things to me, but. I came back and, yeah, just, I should have told him, no, this is not working. I can't be at this place. I'm not being true to what I believe anymore. And I'm not honoring you in the way that you want to do ministry. So I think it's best if I'm not here. And then, oh, one more thing happened where... He, in a meeting, told me that the only way I was ever going to leave Candeo Church was because he would approve of it, and that if I wanted to work at another church in the network or plant a church, it would never happen unless it came with his say, which is alarming. And that process only furthered the distance between our relationship. I then also sent an email to Troy, who was the leader of the Salt Network, about the amount of money that we were spending on church merch. We had church merch, Bose speakers, Nike polos, thermoses, mugs, flip flops. I just felt like it was really bizarre and an odd way for us to be spending church funds. And so I sent an email that two other lead pastors said was tame and appropriate. To him, asking why he did that. And instead of getting a conversation, Cody met with me and told me I was lucky that it was him talking to me because if Troy said what he wanted to, it would be bad news. I don't even know what that means, but that's apparently what was said to me. Yeah. How is that not unsettling? Instead of just being like, oh, even if I was misguided and young and pissed off, Not to engage in a conversation where it's, I'm going to help him understand and show him my philosophy, but instead I'm going to send this lead pastor after him to get him to shut up. I just don't understand how that in any way sounds or looks like Jesus of Nazareth, but I digress. In, In March, we were looking to hire new staffers at this time, and I needed to... hire a few females and i was told by cody the rule was never to hire someone prettier than my wife because i didn't want my wife to be insecure thinking i wanted to have sex with one of my female staffers which is bizarre repressed sexual stuff other kind of red flags i was only given a week of maternity when my twins were born and then looked down on for taking extra time through vacation uh, different time jabs were made to me about using vacation to be with my daughter who had her tonsils out for a few extra nights instead of going to a, a Thursday night for the college ministry. I refused to teach a sermon that made it sound like women were subordinate to men. And then I was told I was teaching too much on the Holy Spirit. And Cody told me he doesn't like teaching on the Holy Spirit because he can't control what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. And then I was told that his view of what I was doing with the ministry was making it all about my personality and that too many people were wanted to follow me and that I needed to change the way I was preaching and teaching to make it more Cody's way and the Candeo way. And so I wasn't going to be allowed to take the summer off from preaching, but I was going to have my sermons reviewed and approved by him. And that started off the summer, which not in a good place, not excited about my job, but then at the end of July in that summer, so in 2019, We found out that one of my twin boys at four months old, his head was way too full of fluid and something was wrong. His head was much larger than his twin brothers. And we went in for a routine ultrasound. And this is a trigger warning for anyone who's been through hospital trauma. I just don't want you being harmed by listening to this next part. But we were told you need to go to Iowa City. You need to get an MRI. There's this children's hospital there. We're weeks away from the Salt Company kickoff. It's the beginning of the school year, huge time for college ministry. We go down, we get the MRI. It's me and my wife, my son and his twin brother. Again, they're babies. And my son, Benjamin, was one who was sick. And we had one of those moments that you feel like you should only see in movies. And I hope anyone listening only sees in movies where like eight or nine doctors walk into the room And the main one says, we're going to take the boys out because the information we have to share with you is very serious. And he proceeds to let us know Benjamin had something called a subdural hematoma. So Benjamin had to be vacuumed out when he was born because he wasn't turning the right way when he got to a certain point in the birth canal. And unfortunately, the hospital we were at didn't do any checks to make sure that his head hadn't been harmed in that. And it had. And so Blood had pooled between his brain and his skull and it had dried up and it was making it so that his brain couldn't vent the fluid as well. And the doctor told us, you may be here for a very long time. There's no knowing how long this will take or the repercussions of what we will have to do to get that blood out of there. But I need you to understand how serious this is and that you may be here for quite some time. We called some friends, called family, arranged childcare for our two oldest daughters, immediately admitted him. And I remember calling Cody, and his response was, I don't know what to do. I wasn't expecting that. then another pastor called and prayed for me. And then I called a friend of mine as they took my son back for a full body x-ray or whatever. And I remember just like lying on the waiting room floor of that x-ray wing and weeping. We get admitted. The next day they do a surgery and they put this tiny needle through the top of the skull and try to pull out some of the dried blood. Then we had to just wait and see what would happen next. And... During this time, again, most if not all of the support we got came from people who were not a part of my staff team or of my church, Candeo, but were people that we had been connected to over the last decade. They sent us money for meals. They sent us essentials for staying in the hospital. They just were incredibly hospitable, praying for us, taking care of us. And it was really incredible to be supported that way, but it was really hard because we felt like our home church really wasn't doing anything at a time where we felt like this is when they would potentially do the most. Now, a few people at the church who are our friends were incredible and went above and beyond. But so it was a couple more days in limbo before the next surgery. And I remember my parents came down to help watch my daughters. And there was this day where my daughter's names are Finley and Auden. And they just came down to visit us to see their brothers. And then we went down to the Mm -hmm. hospital lunchroom and ate with them. And they have this playground. And I'll just never forget running around trying to play with the girls and at the time in my mind, knowing I have no idea the next time I'm going to be home or the next time I'm going to see either of you. And I don't know what to do. And if you've been there, that, but it is one of the most sobering, scary, emotional, intense experiences. And I wouldn't wish it on anyone. The next day, it's like day four. Benjamin has another surgery. Day five, I talked to Cody again. And the policy at the time of the church was you could accrue sick days. And they just kept compounding. And I had spent quite a few years in this network. So I had 80 or 96 days. And he called and started the call with, hey, I want to let you know, you don't have to do announcements this weekend. And in my head, honestly, I was like, no shit, I don't have to do that. I'm not going to come back to do that. And then told him, yeah, I have these sick days. I'm probably going to use them. I I don't know when I'll be back. Like, I don't, I'm not going to prioritize, kick off. I just can't do that. I am going to stay here with my wife and my sons. And his response was, other people have had to do that and worse. So you don't get an exception. Like, you're going to have to figure it out. because." Salt kickoffs really important, and went back and forth on how I wasn't really willing to have that conversation or entertain that idea, and then it was done. And then on day six, the doctor came in late in the afternoon, and he—I was in the bathroom using the bathroom—came out. He said we needed to wait for you, and he said I don't know who you're upstairs or what happened, but today I get to send you home. Benjamin's body is. Beginning to heal itself and doing better than we expected. There's actually no reason we need to keep you here. And that was incredible. And I don't mean to just breeze over that part because it was so beautiful to have that experience and to go through that and to get to go home. And so went home on a Monday, told the church I was taking Tuesday off to just all of us be together as a family and be at home. And then on that Tuesday, I got a call at 5 PM from Cody, making sure I was coming in the next morning to have that meeting with him and said, yep, I'll be there. And walked into the meeting at 9 AM, not realizing everything was about to get very crazy and change. The meeting started pretty typically small talk, how are you guys doing? How was it to see family? All those things. And then he asked me about my plan for the fall and how I was feeling about the college ministry and all the kickoff stuff that needed to happen. And if I felt like I was going to be able to settle in and get stuff done, kind of let him know, yeah, as best I can, I'm going to get back into this. But that the doctor at the time had told us, well, we got to go home. We weren't necessarily totally out of the woods. There was still a lot of monitoring that was going to need to be done. And Every other week, we were going to have to make trips down to Iowa City to keep having MRIs done to make sure Ben was still doing well and his body was responding to the treatment. And then he said something to the effect of, you know, Michael, something about this time with you in the hospital really opened my eyes to the reality of our relationship and... I just feel like it's time that we talk about it. And then he goes, do you want to work here? And I said, what? And he goes, "You know, do you want to work here? Do you like working here? And I said, I don't know how to answer that question or how to have this conversation right now. Like, I need my job. So I don't really know what you're trying to get at. And he said, well, I, I don't always get the sense that you want to be here, that this has been the best place for you. And, you know, you being in the hospital made me realize that a few months ago I gave up on you. I gave up on you as a pastor and as a friend. And there were even times on weekends that we had open where my wife and I knew we should invite you guys over, but I just didn't want to and just chose not to. But you gave up on me too, right? Like you weren't really investing in this relationship, which this is a gross misuse of power. i literally in the most vulnerable position I maybe have ever been in, needing to make sure I can support my family and not in any way ready to talk about my future employment at this church. So that was pretty unsettling to be put into that position right in that moment that way. And I did not really know what to say. And then he proceeded to say that what if money wasn't an option? like?" What if we would just take care of you? Would you want to work here? And I was like, I still don't think this is an appropriate way to have this conversation. I don't understand why we're having it. But no, if you were to tell me that you would take care of us financially, I would not want to work here, especially after having this conversation. This is really uncomfortable. And he said, Okay, well, I, I see it kind of going a few different ways. You know, we could finish out the semester and then you could be done then. We could just be done now, or you could commit to really seeing this as a lifetime partnership with me where you're in it for the long haul and you become the salt director and allow me more influence and management over the way you do things and commit to that level of excellence that I would require and influence that I would want. And I said, well, you know, I'll finish out the semester. And he goes, well, actually, that one would probably be pretty awkward. And I don't know if you'd be able to do your job well. So I feel like the only option we have left is this one where we part ways now. And I said, okay, but, you know, that's incredibly alarming. And I don't have the capacity to understand why you're doing this right now. I need to take care of my family. And I need to make sure that I can provide for them because we may have more medical bills and different things coming up, and I need insurance. And he said, you know, money's not an option. Money's not an option. And then he quoted Martin Luther King Jr., and he said, it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. And I said, okay, I guess I'll think about it. Um, Might want to talk to you more. And I left. And I called my wife, I told her what had happened. And she said she had this weird feeling that she knew that it was going to happen. But then we had a ton of questions. And if you think of like the fight or flight responses, there's fight, flight, fawn, or freeze. I definitely am more of the fawn or the freeze. And what I love about my wife is she's the fight. She processes things so quickly. She understands the implications of things. She's incredibly intelligent and like in a crisis, she's the number one homie. She knows exactly kind of what to do and she can see what's going to be coming in order to prepare for it. And she immediately realizes like, unless we get some things in paper and really understand why he's doing this, we need to know that he's going to guarantee that we are going to be taken care of if he's going to put you in this position, because otherwise we could be in a lot of trouble and it's not safe for us. So I called Cody back and said, I want, can we talk to you tonight? Can we come over after work and process this more with you? And he said, yep, sure. So that night rolls around. My wife and I went out to eat and pretended to eat because we were kind of too sick to our stomach. And then he called and was like, can you get me a coffee on the way? So this man, knowing the position that he was putting us in, asked us to get him a coffee drink on our way to his house to have this horrible conversation and there at this point no other elders know about what's happening no one else is even aware of the situation as far as we can tell and i haven't even been able to notify my staff team of what's happening like it is just so insane all of this stuff that's going on so we sit down and um, We talk about how overwhelmed we feel and just how confusing this all is and how we just don't really understand why this was the time that he felt like doing this and that we can't really make safe decisions or the best decisions because we're really just trying to understand what we need to do next to take care of Benjamin. And he said, well, we need to pretend like Benjamin isn't sick in order to have this conversation and the lack of emotional awareness in that moment by this person to sit and tell two parents, hey, let's pretend that your six days in the hospital didn't happen, although it's not even 48 hours old, is so baffling to me and so outrageous to me that we fought back. We're like, absolutely not. That makes no sense. This, That is impossible. It happened and we can't not think about it that way. And we need to know why you chose to do that. And he said, well, I don't really see a way forward. Uh, I feel like the decision's already been made. And we said, okay, so what does you taking care of us look like? Because you said we would not have to worry about finances and that you would take care of us. And it was August. He said, oh yeah, we will pay you for 11 more weeks. So maybe mid-October. And we said, that is not making it so that finances are not an issue. That is not enough. And I don't see in any way how that is appropriate or how that puts us in a safe position. Which he then got upset and said, You guys are coming at me on my back porch, trying to make me look like the bad guy. Is this, this is my decision? He then called my wife money hungry. And at that point, she, feeling like there's no way this man is going to listen to us, starts to have a panic attack. So she goes, I'm done. I have to go. She leaves, goes to our car and could no longer participate in the conversation. And Cody and I went back and forth again about how this just feels super inappropriate and ridiculous and how some of the things that he said just don't make sense. And I said, so what's the story? Cause I know you're going to tell people one, what's the one you're going to tell them to which he makes up this, uh, this pretend story of, well, it was just our theology. Our philosophy of how we do things and then just ultimately our friendship it just didn't work out and i said okay well i'm done because at that point i didn't feel like he was going to be able to make decisions we even asked him did you consult with the elders did you talk to them about doing this he goes nope i had no idea i was going to do this until this morning so we leave I call another pastor in the network who has always been there for us and is like an actual pastor person who takes care of people. Um, He feels like it's egregious, but again, he can't do anything about it. It's not his church, but he soundboards. I set up a meeting with my staff team. I tell them in the morning, I can't really share any details, so I turn in my computer and I leave and then... We had some friends that were super close to us at the time come for the weekend. They helped us craft an email that we could send to the elders asking to have a conversation with them about what was happening because we wanted to file a grievance and have accountability of some kind occur because it just felt like it was all happening really fast and we had no say. And we needed to make sure that 11 weeks was not... The only thing that we were going to get. So they set up a meeting for like five days later, said they would meet with us and that we would have this conversation. And in order to get the benefits, so we had this conversation about what went wrong. And instead of it really being about, okay, how can Cody grow? We're so sorry this happened. It was more of, well, you you didn't want to be here anyways. Your theology really didn't align. Here's what we're going to do to take care of you. And they were offering, which it is, it was generous. They wanted to give us six months of pay and paid insurance. That is generous. I think they were covering their ass. I think that they were just trying to make sure that the church didn't see this as it really was, which was a pastor making an impulsive decision and really harming a very vulnerable family in a time in their life where a lack of security was further traumatizing. And in order to receive this, I had to sign a a non-disclosure agreement, but it wasn't a typical NDA. It was one that was just saying, hey, for the duration of the time that you're getting paid, please don't tell anyone what happened or don't speak in a way that is like derogatory towards the church. And in the meeting, I just said, well, is the truth derogatory? Is the way I experience things derogatory? Can I share that? And they said, yeah, you can share that. If you feel like it's the truth, you can. And I said, okay, I just want that to be clear. This is the joint statement that they made me sign off on that they sent to the church. To the members of Candeo Church, our desire in all things is to lead with transparency, clarity, and humility, as well as promote unity within the body of Christ. I, okay, Church family, with, with this letter, we want to make you aware of an untimely staff transition. Yep, pretty untimely. Michael our Salt Company director, is transitioning off of our staff team and will not lead our college ministry this fall. Though untimely, in, quotes, in uh, a commas, it says, uh, with the school year starting soon and Benjamin's health complications. This was not a hasty lie or easy decision to make. That's true. It didn't seem very hard for Cody. But we believe this is the best for both Candeo and the Lisi's. Over the last year, Michael and Cody, along with the elders, not true, have recognized irreconcilable differences in values and ministry philosophies, and both decided that for Michael to continue his role as Salt Director would not be ideal for either Michael or Salt Company. I'll give him that one. Because of this, Michael and Cody, along with the elders, still not true, decided that while the timing is not ideal, we needed to make this transition immediately. AKA, We're covering our lead pastor's impulsive ass for being absolutely out of pocket and making a really bad decision. We love the Liseys, no, and are committed to supporting their family in this time of transition as they handle Benjamin's health and gain clarity regarding their next step as a family. We also ask that you refrain from assuming the worst or perpetuating any form of gossip that could surround the situation, aka we fucked up and it's bad, so please don't ask. We love the leases and are committed to making the best decision for them, as well as our premier gross ministry at Candeo, the salt company. It was about them. They wanted to succeed. They wanted things to go their way, and they wanted everyone to avoid talking about it. So I absolutely signed it to take care of my family. And the aftermath was insane. Um, A few months later, I went to a uh, coffee with Cody to chat with him because he asked me and I was very resistant. I ended up getting PTSD from the stay in the hospital and all of this and started having weird uh, panic attacks and told him that he didn't have a word to say about that. Then told me at this coffee that the reason he asked me to hang out was actually because an elder called him out for speaking really poorly about me in an elder meeting. And that elder who had a ton of integrity and still does to this day was not willing to let him get away with it. But in that coffee meeting, Cody literally said, I wouldn't have even reached out to you, but this leader or this elder made it clear that I needed to do something about it. Like, bro, just why do you add that part? That's not honest. That's ridiculous and idiotic. And I just, I don't understand. Then later would call my wife almost trying to reconcile. And all he actually did was tell her how upset he and his family were by our actions. And then said, you and I, Lisa, just see things very differently. So no remorse, no apology. Um, As per usual with these things, most of the church never reached out, never spoke to us We had some insanely loyal college students who bailed on the ministry and to this day have had trouble with faith um, and understanding what happened there and couldn't stay there. And it really affected their um, own personal journey in spirituality. And a basic narrative went out to the rest of the churches that made it seem like I was the problem and Cody was protected, which is kind of the MO for them. We have never heard from Cody or any of them again, nor would I really want to. And that's the story. I am grateful for those of you who've listened this long. And I think what I want to do to end this episode is just ask that if you have questions, reach out to me. You want to know more, please ask more. You can find me on Instagram, you can email the podcast, whatever you want to do, but I just appreciate you listening to my story and validating my experience. I will close with this. Have things changed at that church? It's very possible. I have no idea. Do I know that other people have a totally different experience of me? Yes, absolutely. But what I believe is clear is that with the power that Cody and the elders had, they did not steward it well. There was never a negative performance review that I had. There was never a sign that I, there's no paper trail to say that I was in a position where this could have all suddenly happened. He genuinely admitted that it was this impulsive decision. In hindsight, I am glad it happened, But in hindsight, it wasn't worth the trauma that we had to go through and the things that we've had to experience since. And I think it's important for anyone who's still a part of that network or those churches to realize you are complicit as long as you stay there and you participate and you don't push back or do something about the way things are structured. It is still happening. I know NDAs are still being signed. I know people are still being trampled. And you can't say it's in the name of Jesus and that make it okay. And I think that's where I'll end it. We have to find a way for people to be humanized and not dehumanized. For relationships to matter more and for... People, men, to be held accountable and for healthy things like therapy and emotional intelligence to be supported and offered and real reconciliation possible in environments where these things happen and not in ways that are biased towards the church or the business and the organization, but that really can hold everyone accountable and allow change to happen. This could have gone so differently. This could have been something where they had a plan right out of the gate, say, hey, we're actually going to give you this opportunity. You can be done. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you the next six months. We just know it hasn't worked well for you. We don't think this is best for you. And we're going to go to the church and we're going to say, hey, Cody didn't steward his leadership well. Cody was not as invested in Michael's success and their relationship deteriorated under our watch, and we weren't as informed as we should have been about it. And now this family is going to be displaced from our community, and we're losing them, which should matter. But also, we're learning as a church. Do you understand the integrity? Do you understand the the power that kind of humility would have had? And so that's what I want is just this honesty in these processes, and not these just ridiculous lies and issues and problems that keep coming, especially in this network and a lot of the evangelical church. So I think I could keep talking forever. Thank you so much for listening. Part two will probably come out in a couple of weeks. And I just appreciate that you're along for this ride with me.